I do bring greetings from Sioux Falls Seminary, although you're here all the time. But I do, uh, as Rich said, we serve a wide spectrum. At any one time, we could have 25 different denominations represented here in the seminary. Uh, but the four that Chris mentioned, or Chris, <laughs> Rich mentioned, are, uh, I don't know why I called you Chris. I don't, I, I'm, Krogan. Yeah, Krogan, that's probably it. Uh, but those four are the big ones, Baptist, Lutheran, Reformed, and Methodist. We're going to talk a little bit today about fire, and um, partly because I love fire. Um, I've always, how many people have ever been to church camp back in the day? Or, okay, good. So I've got a group of people that have experienced, like, when you're in church camp and when you're a young male like myself, fire is part of the best part of church camp, probably because you do some stuff with it you, you shouldn't. Um, like Rich said, we won't get into stories about that, although they're fun. Uh, fire's great, uh, but it can be something um, that's powerful, that can be refining. It's this, this really neat thing. My wife is the director of youth ministries for Green Lake Conference Center. It's a conference center in Green Lake, Wisconsin, and she's able to do most of her work, curriculum writing and other stuff, from home. But then during the summer, we're able to spend a little time out in Green Lake. And she hires a college staff who runs the program for the whole summer. And without fail, every single year, there's a gentleman who she hires, um, who it could be whomever it is, who swears, just swears they know how to make a good campfire. Just comes in and they are adamant, I am God's gift to campfire making. And um, as you can probably imagine, the fire doesn't look so much like this the first time they make it. In fact, it looks a little bit more like this one where it's just smoke. It's, there's no flames. It's, it's a little bit chilly because it's the beginning of summer in Wisconsin. It's not a great fire. And the reality is, without flames, fire's not really anything. And you always feel a little awkward, right, when you're sitting around a campfire that's not blazing very much because you're not sure if you should help, because if you help, is that going to make the person feel bad? So fire is powerful if it's built correctly and if you do it correctly. So I always sit down with the person who built the fire that first time and try to lovingly walk through. There's a step-by-step process to building a fire. You have to start with something that's very combustible. That's what we call tender. Then you have to have something that's a little more combustible but will last longer, and that's kindling. Then you have the big logs, which is fuel, right? Now, if you get into the science, you've got oxygen and air and you know, all that kind of stuff. But yes, I love science too. If you get into all of that, that's, that's true. But this is the steps you need to take to get to fire, right? And at the end, if you walk through this, you will have fire. Now, what's interesting is there's a gentleman named Amiel Brunner, and this is his quote. The church exists by fire just as, or, yeah, the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. I've read this quote a thousand times. You'd think I'd have it memorized by now. The church exists by mission, just as a fire exists by burning. Emil is a Swiss theologian, and he wrote this in a book that's a great book that I should tell you the name of it, but again, I've read it a thousand times. You'd think I'd have the name of the book memorized. I don't. Forgive me. I can give it to you afterwards if you want it. But I find this quote to be powerful in a lot of different ways. And this quote is the, one of the reasons that we're going to um, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1, and it kind of mirrors the end of Luke as well. But he is giving us this metaphor of fire for the church. So we're going to play with that metaphor a little bit today. Again, 
We're going to use fire as our metaphor, but we're going to build it. We're going to start with tender. We're going to look at what do, we, what do we want to call tender in this metaphor? What do we want to call kindling? What do we want to call fuel? Well, let's take a look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Here we see it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's read that again. Acts 1.8. This is Jesus talking to his disciples right before the ascension. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Luke throughout the scriptures is referenced as Luke the physician. So he didn't give up his day job to write Luke and Acts and to be engaged in the mission. He was still a physician and was still heavily engaged in the mission through his writing and through other works. We can find um, through some other historical narratives that Luke was probably one of the 72 that Jesus sent out. When you read in, in the gospel, when he sent out the 72 and they came back, Luke was probably one of those. But he's still always referred to as Luke the physician. That's an interesting side note. It's never Luke the guy who did ministry. Luke the physician who was also engaged in ministry. But he wrote Acts and he wrote Luke, which is why they kind of mirror each other. So Rich and I didn't kind of discuss this beforehand, but I applaud Rich on his choice of scriptures because we're going to look at Luke 24 too. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his names to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And there's that word again. You are witnesses of these things. So if we go back to Acts 1, you see that word you pops out quite a bit, right? So we've got, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Three times we see the word you. So who's Jesus talking to? To us, thank you, to us. He is talking to his disciples and to us. That's right. He is saying, you will be my witnesses. Not rich, you'll be my witness. Not somebody else who's on the pastoral staff, you will be my witness. He's saying, collectively, you will be my witnesses. And so that's what we call the tender. If we're going to look at this metaphor of fire, it starts with the fact that we are called to follow Jesus into mission. We serve a missionary God. We serve a God who called Abraham to go. We serve a God who sent his son. We serve a God who is by nature a missionary God. And we are called to follow that God into mission. A lot of times we look at the Christian faith as a transaction where we profess and we confess our belief that God died on the cross and forgave our sins and we're forgiven, we're done. <laughs> I'm in because I made that profession and confession of faith. That's true, but it doesn't stop there. The Christian life is about doing that which God has commanded us to do. We are called to follow. Discipleship is a journey. It doesn't start and stop at any one time. You've got to be following God. So we're called to follow, and that's the, the thing that kind of starts this fire of mission. The second thing is that we have this life of Jesus. 
that we can be witnesses of. When you hear the word witness, what do you think of? What, what pops to your mind when you hear the word witness? Anybody? Courtroom, okay. What else? Something you've seen, somebody you've seen, who've seen something. The, the dean of the seminary here, his name is Ron Sisk. When I was talking with him about this, he said that when he hears the word witness, he thinks of someone who knows the story, someone who's seen. Well, that's why they would be in a courtroom is because they know the story. We have a pretty neat story to talk about. My, my wife's grandmother, I'm going to give this to you, don't touch it. <laughs> my wife's grandmother uh, is, was a wonderful woman. She passed away two Octobers ago, and she's pastor's wife for all of her life. Her husband served as a Baptist pastor in the state of Maine for 40 years. She played the piano. She's an amazing woman, one of the most hospitable women I've ever mean, met in my life. She's kind-hearted. She loved everybody. She was eccentric beyond belief. Um, but one of the things that made her kind of so eccentric was how much she just loved to keep stuff. Um, now, I'm kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. My parents still have stuff that's mine that they will not give to me because they know I'll just throw it away. <laughs> and so like, my, for my birthday, I bought a dumpster so I could put stuff in it. <laughs> like, I love, and that's not a joke. My wife would tell you, it was in our, in our, it was after Christmas. It was glorious. I loved it. Um, so she, I'm eccentric on that end, <laughs> and, but she's eccentric on the nostalgia end. She loves to keep stuff. So I have two funny stories about that. One is um, on what would have been her 54th wedding anniversary. She's going through at it because every once in a while, she would go through her stuff just to see what was still there. And she was, got this big box out, and inside that box was another box, was a shoebox. And in that shoebox was a, a napkin. It's like a Russian nesting doll, right? Box, box, and then a napkin. She opens up that napkin, and I kid you not, what was on her, what would have been her 54th wedding anniversary, she opens up an original piece, or a piece of her original wedding cake. Rock hard, like hard as a rock. It wasn't molded. It was, it was, it was still in pristine form. I don't even know. Like apparently addicts are the best way to preserve cake. It was amazing. But that thing had moved across the country. She'd moved 15 times. And that piece of cake had moved with her every time. She just held on to it. She had no idea she had it, but she did. Um, so she had, because there was a story that went with that cake, and that's why she kept it. She had these two lazy boy recliners. They were blue, and they meant so much to her because she and her husband were able to purchase them. They were like the first thing they bought when they had enough money. They bought two nice chairs, and she'd had them for like 40 years, and they were to the point that when you sat in them, it, it hurt because like the springs would be pushing on your back and the, her doctor had told her, you need to get rid of these chairs because they're not helping with your health. And um, so she never got rid of hers, but she did get rid of the one that her daughter used and put it out on the side of the road for the garbage men to pick up. When the garbage people came by, uh, she, of course, was standing by the window <laughs> to watch this, uh, this thing be put into the trash truck. And um, they dropped it like four times while they're trying to put this into the trash. And so they pick it up and they drop it because it's heavy. I mean, this is like a 40-year-old lazy boy recliner, which is just so heavy. And they drop it and pieces of it are starting to fall off, right? So the arm falls off, which makes it easier to put into the truck. But there's, now it's in pieces as they're putting it into this truck. And this is a woman who just was brokenhearted over what was happening 
to this chair. But the men who were putting it in there had no idea what was happening. Why? Because they don't know the story, right? She has a story that's connected to that chair, and she knows it, and that's why she cares. Those men had no idea, and so they don't care. Sometimes when we're out walking alongside others in mission, we are just flabbergasted when someone doesn't get it. Like, don't you get the life that you could have through Christ? Don't you understand what, what God has done for us? And the reality is, no, they don't, because they don't know the story. There's no reason for them to care, just like there was no reason for those garbage men to care, because they don't have a story to go with it. That's our job. Our job is the fact that we have the life of Jesus to be a witness to. We can witness to others what Jesus has done in our lives, what Jesus has done in the lives of others, what Jesus did while he was here on earth. That's our job. The millennial generation of which I'm a part, there are a lot of statistics that will say 40% of that generation is unchurched. 40% here in the United States. 40% is unchurched. So to assume that the people around you know the story of Jesus is a poor assumption nowadays. Even here in Sioux Falls, even here in the United States, we have a lot of work to do just to get people to care about the fact that there's a story. So it starts with the fact that we're called to follow. And then we have this amazing story to tell. All of us have an amazing story to tell. I'll take my thing back now. Thank you. (laughs) And the last one is the Holy Spirit is what fuels that mission. I will sometimes say there are a lot of people in ministry who are in ministry simply because they have the skills, not because they are resting on the power of the Holy Spirit or have been called by God. The reason I say that is because if you simply recognize God has forgiven me for my sins, and I have a great story to tell people, and then build the rest of that mission on the fact that I have the ability to do this, you're going to burn out very quickly. If we who are walking alongside others expect us to be the ones doing the work, expect our power to be at work in their lives, boy, we're going to be in for a big surprise when nothing happens. It is the Holy Spirit who brings that power. That's what we see in Acts 1.8, right? It says, but you will receive power when what? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit is what gives that power. And those three things together is what brings about mission. If we bring those together, we can go out into the world in mission, in power, and in powerful ways. And this is where a lot of people will tell me, I get it, I've heard this before, I know, the church is called to mission. My question is, and I'll share a story a little bit later where this was really powerful in my own life, do we really get that? Or is it something that we just say but don't understand how it applies or what we're supposed to be doing in it? So if we come back to Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? A lot of times we look at, wish, at, at mission and assume it's somebody else's job. 
right? Or as soon as it happens in some other part of the world. Like, we have a, a person on staff here who's a, at the seminary, he's a professor. His name is Larry Caldwell. He's a missionary for Converge Worldwide, the denomination Converge Worldwide. Uh, it's very easy for me to say, Larry is our missionary. <laughs> Larry is the one who does missions, because that's his job. But that's not what we read in Acts 1.8. It says, you, collectively, he's talking to us, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what does he mean by that? Scholars have looked at this, and they all agree that there's a progression there. It was intentional. When Luke wrote this, when Jesus said it, he meant something by the fact that he started with Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There's an intentionality in that. And they're not meant to be mutually exclusive in the sense that you do one and don't worry about the rest, but they are meant to mean something. And so I've taken those um, words of scholars and tried to put it into language that I understand, and hopefully you'll understand it with me a little bit. The first one for Jerusalem is what he's trying to say is your zip code plus the little four digits at the end of it. Right, so I think the seminary here is in 57105-46-something-8. I don't remember what the last four are. But that's Jerusalem. At the time when Jesus said that it was the people that were around the disciples, you know, people that had a similar understanding of culture, people that were Jewish, like the disciples were Jewish, just kind of right around you. Like, you got to work with those people. When you move to your new location, it's that area. It's, that's your Jerusalem. As a church, that's your Jerusalem. As an individual, it's wherever you live. Okay, so it's wherever you happen to be located, that's your Jerusalem, and your church has a Jerusalem too. And then you've got Judea and Samaria. That is, we'll start with Judea, that's really your zip codes, right? So in Sioux Falls, we've got 57104, 501105, we've got these different zip codes. So we're still in Sioux Falls with Judea, right? So Jerusalem, people around you, your zip codes, still people within your region, if you will. But again, people that kind of understand reality. I was in Phoenix this past week, and culture in Phoenix, while it's still Western American culture, in January is significantly different than culture here in Sioux Falls in January. Right? My kids and my wife were with me, which was a blessing. It was 75 and sunny, and they were in the pool. Because it's 75 and sunny and the pool's heated. And you can, there are people walking by with scarves on. <laughs> like, culture is different. So when you, even when you get outside of your region, it gets a little different. So it's still, though, we're dealing with people we know. Samaria, then, is where we're talking about cultural boundaries. You need to be crossing cultural boundaries. Right? How many languages are spoken here in Sioux Falls? Anybody take a guess? 40, 20, 200? 120. There are 120 different languages spoken in Sioux Falls. So do we think we need to leave this area to cross cultural boundaries? No, <laughs> not even close. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't go overseas. Don't hear me say overseas mission is very, 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 very important. But oftentimes we let that be the mission of the church. When in reality... Christianity is, is growing at a significantly faster rate around the world than it is in the United States. We have a lot of work to do here. Um, so mission means we cross cultural boundaries, but you don't have to leave the city to do that. We don't have to leave... Like, if I have somebody who's a young white male like myself, but wasn't raised in the church like I was, we have different cultural understandings. That is a cultural boundary. 
So it's a big deal that we're talking about cultural boundaries, and especially here in Sioux Falls as we have a large immigrant population. We've got cultures to cross here in Sioux Falls. And it's like Jesus is saying, look, if you get the fact that you can work with people who know you, if you get the fact that you can work with people who are within your region, if you get the fact that you need to cross cultural boundaries, then you worry about everywhere else, right? You need to understand all of this within the context of a mission that I am calling you to as a church, is what Jesus is saying. So here's kind of where this hit, my, hit me. Um, my daughter is six, and uh, she goes to school at Central Baptist uh, Preschool. She's in kindergarten there. She just turned six. And she came out of church one day at, a, at another church. We attend Oak Hills. And um, she said to me after a Wednesday night service, she said to my wife and I, I want to tell someone about Jesus. She came out just glowing and so excited. I want to tell someone about Jesus. And my wife and I, can you imagine how we felt? Awesome, right? We're so excited. She has this passion for evangelism. She's only five. And um, the next thing is what broke our hearts because she says, but who would I tell? I want to tell somebody about Jesus, but who would I tell? And we're like, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, everybody at, my, at church, all my friends at church, they know who Jesus is because we talk about who Jesus is at church. And then she says, and everybody, Daddy, everybody at your office knows who Jesus is because you've got crosses and stuff, and so I'm pretty sure everybody there knows who Jesus is. And Mommy, at your, at your work at Green Lake, we sing songs and we worship Jesus, so everybody there knows who Jesus is. And at my school we talk about Jesus in class. And so I'm pretty sure everybody in my school knows who Jesus is. So if everybody I know knows who Jesus is, who am I going to tell? From the mouths of babes come truth that we sometimes aren't prepared to deal with. It was powerful for my wife and I to hear that because it's true. The people that we interact with, they all know Jesus. So when we look at this and we look at what we're called to do in Acts 1.8, the first thing I have to ask myself and we have to ask ourselves as individuals, who are we developing relationships with? Who are we friends with that aren't Christian? Who do we interact with that aren't Christian? It's very easy to interact with people who are in the same camp as you are. But I think in this mission, what God is calling us to is to say, you need to start in Jerusalem, start in your neighborhood, then think about your region, then think about cultural boundaries. But above all, you need to think about who it is you are walking alongside, and are you intentionally trying to develop friendships with people who don't know Jesus? Friendships. I'm not saying you have to go out and like, walk down the streets and hand out flyers to do evangelism. I'm saying, who do you have a friendship with that isn't a Christian? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in your mission. Thank you for walking alongside us and giving us the courage and the strength and the wisdom and the guidance and the command to do so. Be with us, guide and direct all that we do and say. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen.